Welcome to podcast number 87 of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, for those who are just new, we do three parts. We do political commentary as it applies to the Second Amendment and related issues. We also do some critique of the gun culture and then we do my favorite which is questions and answers and we got some good questions this time really good we have them pretty good ones every time but these are i think especially good so the first thing we we'll kind of talk about is uh we went overboard last time because of the post-election analysis and everything so i won't go through that again obviously but i have to say there is one of the funniest it's sad but funny um, situations, you know, as you kind of cruise the uh, headlines on the internet, one of the things that caught my eye was some NASCAR driver had been suspended for drawing a swastika on toaster strudel. So I said, this can't be real. I, I thought it was actually one of those, you know, uh, sarcastic sites or, you know, one of those. So or one of those put-on sites. But I went there, and, and this guy, he, he doesn't race NAS cars. He races NAS pickup trucks. They have a pickup truck series where they race trucks. I, I've never actually seen that. I, I'm sure that if you hunt uh, ESPN or something, you can pick up on something like that. But anyway, um, the guy races trucks. And, of course, like everyone else in the popular culture trying to become well-known... They pr he probably over exposes his life on on social media and I think in this case it was Instagram anyway he cooked a toaster strudel for his daughter put the icing on it took a picture and said hey here's breakfast for you know my little kid or my little princess or whatever it was and somebody looked at that and said well you put it on as a swastika now the the post was taken down, so we don't have a real picture of what it looked like. And there have been some fake pictures up there. But anyway, they sent it to NASCAR, and NASCAR has suspended the guy over over a piece of toaster strudel. And, uh, you know, we can't even see, you know, we can't even make a judgment for ourselves whether the guy was just kind of glopping it on, trying to get it even, whether it even looked like a swastika, whether it looked like anything else. Um, you know, th this is how and I'll use the term batshit crazy, people are nowadays. You know, people see swastikas everywhere, even on toaster strudel. And this has kind of always been around. Um, without going into a long story, I knew a guy who, who basically swore that neo-Nazis were after him. And this is decades ago. And they had written a swastika on his door. Now, I fully expected the swastika would would be you know red paint and very obvious what it was and everything but you know and looking at it it was not it somebody had kicked his door and they had shoes that had some sort of a dark sole and um you know the sh sole of the shoe not the sole of the person and, and they kicked it you know something kids would do and there were a couple lines that were crossed but it really wasn't a swastika I mean, it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, swastikas are in the eye of the beholder, I guess. So you can call anything a swastika. And, and you know, this guy was, was just paranoid, and he thought this was a sign that the, the neo-Nazis were after him. And, of course, if, if the neo-Nazis can't draw a better swastika than that, then I don't think you have anything to worry about. But it, it wasn't a swastika. That's the whole point. And I, I strongly doubt, unless I see, you know, irrefutable evidence to the contrary i doubt this guy put a swastika on his daughter's toaster pastry you know that's ridiculous nobody does that you know this is this is the same kind of thing that went on remember that the, the, what did they have 10 fbi agents go to it was another nascar deal the only black nascar driver swore that somebody put a noose in his garage you know the the nascar garage at the at the racetrack where his car was stored and i think they had 10 fbi agents go down there and all, all of a sudden they realized i guess after an exhaustive investigation and these guys they'd have to be real morons not to not to figure this out right away but anyway these morons after a lengthy investigation 
you know, they found out that it was a garage door pull, you know, so, you know, you could pull the garage door down. A lot of garage doors have that in case, you know, the mechanics uh, fail to work. So, and, and it had been there for months, if not even a, a, over a year. So it de definitely was not directed at this guy. It was not a news. And it took 10 FBI agents to figure this out. I mean, it's ridiculous. People are seeing this kind of stuff everywhere. And, uh, you know, we, we just have to push back on some of this. It's getting, it's getting completely ridiculous. And uh, it's all in an attempt to try to silence anybody that they disagree with on whatever issue, not just about swastikas and nooses but about other things it's a way they're trying to cow people and the fact that the fbi and nascar which is a a really crappy organization in my opinion i mean they just they're just a bunch of losers just um, out there to you know separate people from their money um, tickets are overpriced a lot of a lot of things are wrong with nascar and the garage the garage pull noose was one of them and the toaster strudel swastika you know I, all i can say is do you do you feel safer at night that someone has ginned up the toaster strudel swastika hoax you know do you feel safer at night because of that and the answer is no do you feel better about the sport because of that and the answer is no so it's it's really ridiculous and uh you know, but it's what we live in, and that's the political commentary. And it's only, I'm afraid, a matter of time before this type of vitriol, this type of, you know, suspension of reality gets turned on gun owners again. This happened in the early 90s. Remember, gun owners were vilified. And, you know, as, as a, I was pretty heavy into, you know, service rifle and NRA competition. And I was in the army at the time, too, that that's part of it but i can remember you know these 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 dopey little soccer moms going i'm worried about a drive-by shooting in my neighborhood and it's like lady the neighborhood you live in does not have drive-by shootings the neighborhoods that do are ones that need to be protected and the citizens in there need to be protected but it's you know it's it's a whole different situation it's not a suburb it's not a military base some of these were military how somebody who lives on a military base could worry about drive-by shootings because they're happening in in compton and and some of these other places i don't know but they did and uh you know to explain to them it's a completely different situation and the problem needs to be solved in those neighborhoods through policing through anti-gang activity and everything else simply a gun law won't make any difference and, and it didn't. It didn't make any difference. Um, fortunately, it sunsetted in 2004, which was, you know, one of the best days of my life was when that thing, you know, crashed and burned. But there are a lot of people, they will, the, the media, the Democratic Party, media, evil axis, axis of evil, will get out there and they will vilify gun owners on any level. All of a sudden, and you'll know it'll start happening when, you know, and it's the 24-7 news cycle. It'll happen when Fox News and MSNBC and all the rest, you know. A two-year-old boy was shot accidentally at his home in Buffalo, New York. Okay? And then two days later, it'll be a three-year-old had a bullet land near her head while she was sleeping in, you know, Oxnard, California. And, and it'll start this drumbeat. It's a, it's a battle to control the narrative. It's a drumbeat where everything will happen. Now, they'll ignore, they'll ignore kids who've drowned, kids who've been in accident, automobile accidents. They'll, they'll ignore every other accidental or even deliberate cause of death of children just to highlight these these cases plucked from around the country a country of 300 million people so hey there is going to be an occasional accident but what they won't report is gun accidents don't even statistically make a enough of an impact on the death or injury of children to be even any kind of a factor they won't they won't report that they won't report that there are other things out there that are that are a hundred or even a thousand times worse. 
uh, they'll take these isolated cases and try to weave them together into a narrative that guns are bad, guns are hurt, guns hurt people. Even responsible owners can't control their guns all the time, so they hurt people. They'll they'll try that. They'll try that. Um, the only the only political advice I can give you is guess what? In January is it January? There's going to be a runoff election in Georgia for two Senate seats, and it's imperative. And I'm not a total Republican Party hack, you know. It's it, just because somebody has an R after their name doesn't make them, uh, you know, the best person in the world to me. But you know, if the Republicans don't win those two seats, then it's going to be a very difficult, a much more difficult fight to fight back against what could be become proposed gun control legislation. So, if you care about your gun rights. Um, you know, even if you live in Montana or you live in Washington State or you live in the People's Republic of California or wherever it is you live and you're listening to this podcast, hey, get on their website for the two Republican candidates for the Georgia Senate and just make a small donation because you know Soros and all the rest of them are going to be pouring. Bloomberg and Soros are going to be pouring money in there. So the only chance we have is to pour enough in so that uh, they can get their message out. And hopefully uh, we can then have, you know, two Republican senators from Georgia, which would be something that we need very much. So anyway, that's it for the politics. That's it for for all of that. Um, Okay, let me talk about something. It kind of comes out every once in a while. You see it in in kind of gun videos, and uh, you know the Forgotten Weapons guy does a really good job with with these sometimes. Um, you know, we, and I actually we have an earlier podcast. We talked quite a bit about fakes. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot going on with fakes. Um, it's usually well. Let me just say that if if we go into any kind of an economic slowdown or recession there's a lot more collector stuff on the market now that will that will present an opportunity for someone who's looking for a piece that's you know generally unavailable or if it is it's at a super high price but any kind of an economic downturn or slowdown you know things pop onto the market because somebody's been holding it they're really not that crazy about it and they decide they'd have rather have the money for something else or you know these these uh things that they've inherited or whatever else they just decide that they need to turn them into money to either make ends meet or do something else saw this in 2008 um yeah i don't really watch the market for borchard pistols too much you know that was the one before the luger i don't really watch the market for those too often but when they come up they're kind of intriguing to me and it's uh, i'd seen one kind of on the open market a lot of times these things get sold in between the very high-end collectors because they're rare and the ones in especially nice condition are are even more rare so i i had only seen one actually on the open market um in 2008 or 9 i can't remember which one i, I saw two of them you know and it's hey there was a big downturn then you know the economy almost crashed and uh you know so when these things happened it became a an imperative for some people to get some get some cash or or to finally gave them the excuse to get out of these expensive items that they were holding saying hey it's 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 just not for in the next five or six years this is not going to go up in value so i may as well get out of it now so you know that opportunity may come out there and with that are are going to be some fakes are going to surface and you know, I, I kind of believe this about fakes. There's, I used to believe, I used to believe the only reason something gets faked is so somebody can make money. I mean, that to me was the, the basic, the basic motivation why you saw a fake. And, uh, you know, and I think that's still true. There are people who will take a common or fairly common example of something and turn it into a rarity because they, they, um, you know, have the skill to be able to do that. 
and usually they trip themselves up usually it's it's very difficult to do something so exactly that they can uh, figure it out but if you can fool but you only have to fool the guy with the money you know that's the only guy you have to fool and face it once somebody pays a collector's premium for a rare a very rare piece um, they're gonna believe it's true then it you know just by lore becomes true you know it becomes true and uh, so you have to be very very careful and as we have kind of researched more and more some of the less sophisticated fakes are, are exposed but you know there's still some probably some very good fakes out there and you know so it's buyer beware the second time the, the, now that's just for the strict money aspect and that dovetails into the guy who believes that his fake is real and it becomes a point of pride it becomes a point of of I'm right it becomes a, a just a point of of um, pride and and valor and something they won't come off of they will believe to the end of their days that it's a that it's real and it's not a fake and there are some collectors out there who are such I won't say narcissists but you know they have this they're so full of themselves their egos are so big they have that one hole in their collection and they either procure or create a fake to fill it and then it becomes fake and um, I've seen this I've seen this several times and you know one of the one of the um, groups that I was a member of um, in a World War II vehicle restoration uh, one guy who who basically very big ego um, bought himself a very early Jeep and of course if you notice if you look, actually research this you know the World War II Jeep the icon that we're all used to looks one way the earliest ones looked a little bit different the grill was different and you know a few other a few other details were different well he bought one of these early jeeps and swears that it's completely 100 percent original and people who know and he knows too he knows too but other people who know said well it's not quite it's it's this that and the other thing to to a person like myself i don't really care you know i I really don't care if it's got a later <laughs> style differential, the kind they made in 44 as opposed to 1940. You know, it, it basically fits in the same place, does the same thing. But I realize there are some people that that is very, very important to, but I am not one of them. So you will see, um, you know, a person will have something and they'll swear it's it's absolutely 100% original and that's where you get into these fake on vehicles fake data plates and and fake markings and all the rest of this stuff and the difference can be uh, for these and these are high dollar items I mean these these kind of things cost between 10 and, and probably $25,000 um, these things are very very you know important as far as the value goes but they're so the value is one component and the pride and the I told you so and and people deluding themselves that something which is fake is real is is something else so just wanted to kind of give everybody the caveat emptor that you know if, if you kind of are saying well you know maybe for the next three or four years depending on the political climate my interest might go towards more historical firearms and accoutrements um, you might want to just keep an eye out realizing that there's been a lot of fake stuff and there's been a lot of low-level fake stuff too usually it's just done for money but you know people fake $20 rifle slings I mean what the magic is in having a you know a rifle sling for your M1 I get it and the originals are hard to find they're expensive and they're frail I completely get it but the the having the fake with the fake you know year of 1943 or whatever on it and that to me I've just never quite liked that I've never liked the original markings done it doesn't matter to me that my retro AR says Brownells on the side in fact I kinda like that because it, it kinda it clarifies everything there's no question there's no mystery there's no there's no anything about that it, it is what it is uh, with some of this other stuff a lot of the slings web gear and all these other things have been unscrupulously faked and made in China and brought over here and um, you know as those things 
they can be artificially aged and it's you know easy to fool someone who's not a a real detailed expert in some of that stuff and the difference between a uh, you know a cartridge belt that's sells for $25 or $30 as a repo and one that sells for $200 you know there's enough of an incentive there to make that make that happen so be very careful about accoutrements things they even make fake bayonets now I mean they even they even do that so you have to be very very careful um, everything you buy unfortunately the fake it's, it's like what the, how they ruined the the stock cartouches on on m1 rifles and other military rifles there's so many guys you could buy the stamps from gun parts corporation you know numeric arms you could at one time you could buy stamps from them there were guys who were who were uh, you send their stock to them your stock you send it to them and 50 bucks or 75 bucks whatever it is and they they mark it up and they've now found that even you know the newly made stocks are, um, are are turning up with cartouches that they never would have had so they're obviously fake so anyway buyer beware okay another uh, issue that's come up and and there are some videos out there of various ages going back a few years and that's on the confusion around pistol caliber carbines and so you know to me pistol caliber carbines are, are useful they're nice I've often said that if you have a a, a handgun and a and a long arm that take the same cartridge you either have an overly powerful handgun or a <laughs> wimpy long long arm and you know it, it does work though in some in some circumstances like 22 long rifle I mean it, it people take 22 small game hunting so having a 22 pistol seems to make a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense uh, people who are living in especially dense wooded areas or, or places where they're not going to get a lot of range uh, pistol caliber carbine is is totally fine and they come in a variety of things variety of power everything from well it can be 22 I suppose all the way up to like 44 magnum really um, there have been some 500 magnums you know made into little lever guns I think on a custom basis but those are pretty much outliers so kind of get rid of them um, there's also of course the semi-automatic breeds you know things like the Ruger PC carbines and the um, um, CZ scorpions and and you know and then ARs and AKs and all these other things that are in pistol caliber that all have their specific use but you know generally I would say there's there's just a couple things to keep in mind one is that not all pistol caliber carbines are wimpy and not all intermediate cartridge rifles or carbines are are all powerful and here's some examples you know how would you classify 30 carbine well it's really kind of it is kind of pistol caliber but it's really on the low the very low end of the intermediate cartridge simply because it, it has enough of a ballistic coefficient and power that you know you can ring large enough gongs at 300 yards with it that's about the limit but you can you can do that pretty pretty easily not not too hard uh, it's it's a lot better than using a nine millimeter carbine and trying to do that especially ones with very short barrels um, what about this you know the FN 5.7 I would say that's kind of at the low end again of the intermediate cartridge it's it's less powerful than 545 or 556 but you know and it has been chambered in pistols but it's it's pretty much kind of an outlier so it's kind of at the bottom there too um, and those are just two examples of kind of the lower end you know then you you start moving it up a notch and you get into 762 by 39 556 545 833 Kurtz um, and, and you know there are others out there um, in lever guns you you know the 3030 is kind of you know a for all intents and purposes it is has some intermediate cartridge characteristics uh, and is it's very good at it you know it's very good it, it actually outperforms 762 by 39 by a little bit so it's actually a very very good cartridge to use where I tend to part ways 
is when people try to tell me 357 in a lever action carbine is as good as a 3030. And the, and the answer is it's just not. And, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of kicked this around a little bit before, but, you know, I, I don't care what anybody says. The truth is the truth. The 3030 Winchester was designed as a rifle cartridge. The bullets it fires are rifle bullets with thicker jackets. It has a better ballistic coefficient, even in the kind of the blunt nose, not even talking about the Leverushin. Leverushin. Yeah. However they pronounce that, when they put lever action and revolution together, it got Leverushin cartridges. Um, so they, they um, you know, it, it is a genuine rifle cartridge. The 357, excellent as it is in many ways, is a genuine pistol cartridge and it has pistol style bullets they do not have a great um, ballistic coefficient for going distances between say 50 75 100 to 200 yards and so it's just it's just foolhardy to say that they're equal but you will hear that all the time and it's just simply not true it's it's the case of the pistol caliber carbine and it's in a very pure form the lever action rifle against a lever action genuine rifle in 3030 a rifle cartridge and winchester winchester had figured this out i mean they they had said years ago and we've kicked this around too that you know that when lever action guns came out they just weren't that strong so they chambered them in cartridges that were appropriate and those cartridges also became pistol cartridges because they were they were uh, good cartridges for self-defense and they fit the Colt single action army for the most part you know so they that's where you get 4440 3840 and and you know various other things um into these lever action rifles 76 was a step forward it actually took a rifle cartridge but it was still kind of a weak design but when the 86 came out you could put some of the most powerful rifle cartridges of the day in it and uh, and be very happy so um, it wasn't until the 86 Winchester kind of came out that you could really you could really up the game and by 1900 uh, Winchester had figured it out they were still making pistol caliber carbines they were making intermediate powered rifles the 94 series and they were making you know much more powerful uh almost big game type cartridges uh you know african game cartridges um, and dangerous bear cartridges and you could get those in the the 86 and the 95 winchesters um you know 405 winchester was a was a big it it, it was a good african um, hunting caliber in its day so you know you have all that and that's uh that, that was a pretty smart broad range so you know the pistol caliber carbine has its place but it doesn't mean that it is ascendant over you know cartridges like the 3030 winchester the 32 winchester special 30 remington you know 35 remington all these other um kind of you know 300 Savage was another one. Yeah, 300 Savage. You know, some of these ones that were rifle cartridges, but they just weren't the most powerful rifle cartridges because a lot of North American hunting did not require that. Didn't need it, didn't require it. So, you know, it, it, to me, the pistol caliber carbine has always been, it's the place where it shines, and it shines brilliantly is... Hey, for the open sight, iron sight, uh, handy carbine for really fairly close ranges, you get a lot of capacity, you get very reasonable power, and you get a gun that handles very, very well. Um, whether it's the lever gun, traditional lever gun, uh, lever guns, or or even a more modern semi-automatic, you get you you do get that, and it's a very, very nice package to have. But it is not the be-all, end-all. And in fact, I think they were kind of dying off for a while. They've, I think the reason they've come back, in the semi-automatic form anyway, is... Well, two things have brought them back. One was cowboy action shooting brought the, the lever guns back in pistol count. Because you cannot use the 3030 Winchester. You just can't do it. So that, that kind of brought the, the whole things of 
you know, Henry's and 66's and 73's and uh, 92's brought those all back. And uh, so somebody somewhere is manufacturing a clone of those of those guns. So that's what brought it back for the lever guns. I think it was ammo cost and then some forms of competition which have brought it back to life because the Ruger PC9 uh, originally kind of died off you know people said why do you want this when you could have a 556 for approximately the same weight and same um, you know envelope you know the, the size of the gun was about the same size as a uh, as a, at least a uh, folding as a telescoping stock m4 style gun so you know it, it was kind of dying out then it, it, it's kind of come back into its own when they people realize and I'm, by people, I mean not so much agencies, but a lot of a lot of people who are armed citizens kind of go, hey, this this thing does have a niche. I think that if you you really kind of look at look at the St. Louis couple, he was very successful with an intermediate cartridge rifle. It had the intimidation factor to keep them keep them off. Would a lever gun had done the same thing? I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. Would something like a the uh, CZ Scorpion or the new Ruger PC had done it? I, I think so. I think they would have had enough intimidation factor that uh, you know they could have they could have easily done it. Maybe even a high point. You know, <laughs> not my favorite, but I do respect the fact that it's there and it works. And you know, it's it's but ugly, but it it uh, it'll it'll definitely get the uh, get the job done. So. The pistol carbine versus the intermediate cartridge rifle. To me, there's no real choice. I'm I'm much more of a 30-30 guy than I am a 357 in a carbine guy, and that's just me. So, anyway, that just wanted to roll that up. You you see it every once in a while where people try to portray or hype something as better than it is, but you really have to look at look at the numbers and then decide for yourself if the if the difference in the numbers matters. Okay, and we'll go to uh, our next thing, uh, something that kind of popped up to my attention, that even in Walmart, which, you know, is, is basically been sold out of ammunition, ammunition is hard to get, everybody knows that, but you know what, I can still find 12-gauge shotgun shells even in Walmart, which brings up the question, are combat shotguns still relevant, and by combat shotguns, I mean, you know, essentially the shorter barrel pump action could be semi-auto semi-auto or pump um, kind of combat shotgun as as kind of I don't know illustrated by the riot shotguns or trench shotguns you know ones made for or police shotguns you know and you know usually that short barreled shotgun uh, 18 to 20 inches and and I still think that they're very viable the reason you don't see much about them anymore is I think they've just been so overwhelmed by carbines, you know, ARs to a much lesser degree, AKs and things. But there are there are some guns I won't get behind, like the coach gun. If that's your primary defense gun, I think you have a problem. You know, the the short double barrel shotgun is sort of like a sort of like a Derringer. You know, hey, you get a shot. And you get you get two one shot and then you get another shot and then you're done. Then you're you got the thing open and you're trying to stuff cartridges in it. So I just don't think that it has enough capacity. Uh, it can certainly be a backup gun. Um, you know, if you got two people in a house, somebody has. You know, we'll just say for instance they have a lever action pistol caliber carbine and the backup to that is a person with a double barrel hey you're, you're probably in pretty good shape but as a primary um, I don't think the double barrel is particularly a, a good gun to to, to use um, you know and and it's I'll leave it up to people maybe a high capacity handgun with the double barrel as the backup is is a better idea you know that's that's that could be viable but I think you have to be kind of pretty sure your tactics and your training to make sure that that you can you can pull that off but that's that's not something that I would feel completely you know uh, under armed with or behind the eight ball with if that's all I had available was say a Beretta 92 and a double barrel shotgun 
but I would much rather have a police or military style pump or semi-auto uh, that's at least got say five or six cartridges in it and uh, you know you can you can definitely defend yourself you know putting the myths of a shotgun aside which is that you don't have to aim it yes you do they don't have great sights sometimes they just have a little bead that you put on top of the receiver so you have to go out and actually practice where this thing is going to do it understanding that even if you're shooting birdshot that at, at your you know, close range home defense type ranges this thing is not going to spread out um, it's not going to spread out at all and and realizing that you do have a range limitation um, for birdshot of you know about 30 yards you're you're really not going to be um, putting anybody down it will by that time it will have spread way out and then you have tiny pellets um, buckshot is a little bit different buckshot is a little more unpredictable as to where it's going to go uh, slugs are big <laughs> big cannonballs and so you know kind of understand you're firing a cannonball at somebody which is not a bad thing um, I don't have enough experience I should rephrase that I don't have any experience with the uh, AK or AR shotguns that are out there uh, some of them are you know pretty attractively priced I don't know what you're really getting for that how reliable they are how how good or bad they are but um, yeah they, they are very very mean looking and uh, you know I I do kind of like them I do kind of like them um, they do I was I was in a gun shop the other day just looking around and trying to you know keep up to date on things and I saw an aftermarket um, AK shotgun magazine and this thing looked you know like a 40 round RPK magazine and I think it only held about 10 or 12 rounds but you know I'm just sitting there going hey that's that's a pretty that's a pretty effective deal you know you got 10 11 rounds of this thing uh, especially if you have one in the spout and you have the magazine full uh, you might be okay you might be okay um, you always worry about reliability you know the shotgun shell was never designed for semi-automatic actions it was never intended to be a fighting cartridge like that in fact the uh, the paper cartridges that you know they used in the first fighting shotguns you know, 100 years ago and before, um, really didn't work out so well in military service. You know, they get wet and they kind of swell and then they don't work in the gun so good. And, you know, a whole lot of things were, were creating a problem there. So uh, they had to go to all brass shells, which improved things quite a, quite a bit and made it a much better weapon. But you do have, compared to other alternatives, some limited capacity. You're trading, you're trading some power for capacity and you're also trading range for nothing i mean you know you just you don't really have that much range although i think in some you know you certainly that would not be as severe a handicap as people think because most most lethal uh, confrontations are going to be at fairly close range so the longer you can shoot probably doesn't matter nearly as much with that so yes they are still relevant you know i, I just don't know i just don't know um I always kind of go back to that St. Louis couple because I think that was such an intriguing an intriguing case. If he had been holding even a fearsome looking shotgun, take the AK and AR out of it because somebody couldn't identify those as shotguns per se. But if he had been holding a, a police style pump Remington 870, would it have had the same intimidation factor? I, I think it probably would, but you know, it did not have the when you see the magazine sticking out the bottom of an AR, everybody kind of knows. Everybody kind of knows that's that means lots of bullets. So, um, yes, I think they're still relevant, but I think you know you have to be you have to be careful of uh, what precise task you're going to lay against that piece of equipment. So that's what I think on on uh, on that very interesting though you see you see a few videos and things on it but nobody's really talking about shotguns now um, you know you see the three gun competitors with their fantasy guns um, you know maybe that has some relevancy maybe it doesn't but you don't see a lot of other kinds of competitions where the combat shotgun is any kind of a, a factor or anything and you don't really see a lot of combat shotgun 
combatives or anything coming coming out it, it just seems to be in the background right now be interesting to see where it goes okay here's my favorite part of the podcast questions and answers and we have a question who came in from our longtime listener mr clown bear and he asked which caliber would you choose 6.5 creedmoor or 308 winchester and the answer i have is well i've, I've actually chosen both but um, and I'll give you the reasons why. I'll give you the reasons why. For vintage military rifles from the Cold War era, you know, obviously that's the M14 style rifles, G3 style rifles, and FAL style rifles. Um, you know, you go with you go with 308, 762 by 51, the military designation. That's what you go with because that's what they came in. I realize they're. I think you can get an M, a Springfield Armory M1A and 6.5 Creedmoor now. I think you can get a few others. Um, I think you'll probably even, I think uh, DS Arms probably makes a 6.5 Creedmoor FN. I, I would assume they do. But for the most part, you're talking 308, 762 by 51. So for, for shooting like that, I think it's, you know, that decision's made for you. Uh, when I was putting together a bolt action kind of a, an accuracy, long-range accuracy rifle project, I chose 6.5 Creedmoor over 308 Winchester because of lighter recoil. Um, the ballistic coefficient of the bullets is so excellent. The fact that I don't have to worry as much about elevation and drop in the trajectory of the bullet. And, and this gun was not designed to represent anything historical or anything or anything tactical or it was not designed to hunt large game okay so it, it was just suited as a paper puncher uh, if the opportunity presented itself I might use it for like coyotes or something um, but it was not designed predominantly to get game it was not designed to fight people it was the 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 project I put together, which is what a lot of people use them for, is is simply just paper punching, target shooting at longer ranges. So it's really good for that. There are some hunters, you know, who do appreciate the lighter recoil, and they're like me. They like 6.5 guns. I've just I've had good luck with them. I don't know why. And and I've just shot before this one. I just shot, shot surplus uh, 6.5 Swedish. But they're very good guns. They're cool. They have. You know, it's it's nice to shoot something that that has power and range, but doesn't you don't pay for it in recoil. So um, they're very very nice guns that way, and that's that's why I chose it. Now, if I were actually hunting, and and within the limits which with which I can hunt, identify game and and things like that, the additional what I feel is the power of the 308 Winchester is is a lot more desirable. Um, I just I just think that if you came up across an elk is a 6.5 appropriate I don't know I would not being a great hunter or even a hunter any at all anymore I, I would still feel more comfortable with the 308 it's got a lot of great advantages um, you get 30-06 performance in a short action and so that that says it there it's also wonderfully accurate in precision precision shooting and uh, you know, in my opinion, you could you could make a lot worse choices. I think though that you probably have a three or four hundred yard advantage with the six point five Creedmoor, if that matters to you. If you're just going to shoot out to say five hundred or six hundred, uh, three hundred eight is still a very very credible and good cartridge. So um, yeah, I actually choose them both. I don't know what the military use of the 6.5 Creedmoor is really going to to do. I know that they, you know, SOCOM has bought some, but they buy a little bit of everything. They they buy everything, and whether or not they actually use it will be very interesting to see. I I think they will be very impressed, and I think they will think that my thinking would be I like the 120 to 140 grain bullet. A lot better than I would like a six millimeter bullet, which is what the six millimeter Creedmoor or 
243 Winchester or whatever the derivate, you know, whatever derived cartridges they have in that six millimeter class are. I, I would I would think that although they probably shoot a little flatter, that I would uh, I would want the um, mass of the bullet to be, you know, just a little bit larger than what they can offer. So anyway, we'll see what uh, see how that goes. I think the military though will probably. I don't see them abandoning 762 by 51 as a as a machine gun cartridge and a cartridge that can do a lot of things. Um, so I don't really see that happening. But I don't see it basically being the sniper cartridge anymore. It's already been replaced. Um, for years in the Cold War, that's all we had. And, and, and effectively, with the kind of combat we were looking at, it was going to do just fine, just as it had in the Vietnam War. So... Uh, for the for the majority of, of our precision target elimination needs, the 308, the 762 by 51, 308 Winchester was just fine. It was just fine. Um, but you know, time has moved on, and definitely the Creedmoor. I'm very impressed with it, and I I really like it. So I'm not saying it's going to replace it. I don't really think it will, but it has kind of a niche and a place all of its own. So that's. That's where I am with that. Okay, next question is, what is your definition of a Saturday night special? Um, well, I don't have a definition because Saturday night special, for those who, who don't really know the origin of that term uh, or aren't familiar with it, that was kind of a racist term, Saturday night kind of came from this thing of uptown Saturday night which was kind of a derogatory term used to talk about weekend crime in ghettos and inner cities in the 1960s so it, it was kind of this term that got and it got co-opted by the gun controllers as a way to try to make all handguns illegal so um they would basically say, oh, cheap handgun that's, you know, not suitable for anything but but killing and blah, blah, blah. A usually small caliber, 22, 25, 32, um, inexpensive, you know, cheap, inexpensive, and just designed to facilitate crime and violence in those neighborhoods. That's what it was, that's what it was designed to do. Oh, it was complete fiction, of course, complete fiction. And in fact, you know, every bill that tried to outlaw Saturday night specials wound up, you know, making almost all handguns illegal. You know, Colt Single Action Army, the frame wasn't big enough, you know. The, uh, it went on and on, the 1911, you know, all these, all these iconic guns that were not in the common understanding of a Saturday night special would have been made illegal and that's why all that legislation failed. The only place where they made any inroad was in the Gun Control Act of 1968. The importation of pistols had to meet a certain size, they had to have a sporting purpose, so sometimes guns that didn't need them had a, a um, an adjustable sight added. Uh, you got things like and, and the, the prime example would be the Walther PPKS. The Walther PPK, the, the frame was too small to pass this, you know, arbitrary regulation. So Walther in Germany put the larger PPK, PP frame with a PPK slide creating the Walther PPKS, which meant it was the export model for the United States. So that's what that's the only place where they made any any inroads with that. I suspect it will come back. The the term will come back because people will conveniently the people on the left and the gun controllers will conveniently forget its its origin and how it was applied to people who were, you know, in ghettos and in inner cities. So that's that's what I think of Saturday night specials. Are there indeed cheap handguns? out there and the answer is yes and it's not illegal to make a low priced product it's not illegal to have a common a, uh, um, a commonly available um, version of something that doesn't cost a lot 
it just it's not illegal so you have a lot of a lot of guns out there the you know and everybody talks about the the jennings brico raven arms all those and that's true those guns those guns are out there and then there's the high points which people would say or any gun that uses the aluminum uh zamac um you know that kind of uh, that bronze uh, alloy you know and and this is an arbitrary thing that's just been applied to firearms nobody and they don't even really apply it to long arms nobody says that a 22 rifle is a saturday night special nobody says that anything that costs under two hundred dollars as a rifle is a saturday night special nobody says that um you know you don't nobody looks at the lowest price car you can buy and say well that's a saturday night special you know so it was only applied to one class of product and that was handguns and that was simply for political expediency and uh so that's what i think about that okay let's uh let's look at a couple other things right now next question what out of production guns should be brought back i think that's very easy answer to that is you have to look at the ones people would actually buy not just say oh wow it's cool that that's there and then they'll they'll never buy it so many older designs are still in production maybe not by the original manufacturers but um they're still in production which is which is awesome uh things like the winchester style rifles you know the 73 66s all those someone somewhere is making those same thing with sharps rifles you know um those are being made uh, a lot of the uh, you know Colt style guns, the Smith and Wesson break tops, you know all that old West stuff because of cowboy action shooting predominantly, has has all come back and it's being produced you know. But the guns I think would be sure winners would be Colt Anaconda, and Colt Diamondback. I think if they brought those back, they would be like the Python. They'd sell them like crazy. So I think that those two should be brought back. And as, and as cool as it would be to have something like, oh, they, they were going to redo the board chart, nobody would buy it. And it would be fantastically expensive to, um, to manufacture. I mean, and, and so all, very few people are going to buy a $15,000 gun or even a $10,000 gun. It's just not going to happen. Uh, legislatively, of course, Class three stuff can't be made again but you can get a semi-automatic uh, version of most of that which is you know okay you know you, you can uh, you can get something very cool uh you know other other things that could be brought back i think you know there's enough martini henry's out there we don't need to bring that back um because the base rifle of the snyder enfield is being produced the muzzleloader 1857 you know enfield musket rifled musket you know could somebody do snyder conversions on those yeah i think so be interesting to see if they shoot any better than the uh, originals if the uh, the tighter tolerances and things we have today would make that a uh, a better rifle we'll see we that would be interesting to see could probably have that done on a custom basis but i'm sure it'd be very expensive okay next question why did bolt-action rifles become more popular than lever-action rifles and single-shot rifles? Okay, the answer to that is um, just a little bit of a history lesson. And the answer is, you know, lever-actions and single-shots were very popular up to about 1900. Um, bolt-actions started coming in, but, but at first they were kind of a military thing. There were a few, there were a few that kind of uh, were popping around the civilian world, but, but clearly the market was in single shots and lever actions uh, spanish american war happens and and basically the the bolt action rifle is one of the emerging technologies out of that kind of becomes proven in the spanish american war but it really didn't make a dent because mostly it was regular army troops a lot of them which were in for a career and really weren't going to buy guns and go hunting with them um, it, it kind of it became a little more interesting after the uh, spanish american war and you know with national matches and things the, the bolt action rifle was kind of there but it was world war one where we actually mobilized four million men and equipped them and trained them with bolt action rifles after the war you basically see 
lever-action rifles dropping off and the demand for bolt-action rifles you know increasing dramatically so that's why that that had happened you know hand in hand with that went um, cartridge development also you know the single shot which you know was kind of a 1860 to 1890 it was kind of a viable fighting rifle really kind of fell by the wayside because it it took uh, you know the cartridge design changed so dramatically that uh, you know single shots weren't just going to stick around and they weren't that fast you know they were a lot better than what came before them but it was clear that there was going to be some sort of magazine system to accommodate these you know more slender more sleek cartridges that uh, you know they were basically small enough and they were they were much more powerful that uh, you know there was going to be some sort of a system whereby you could fire them faster and firepower was kind of where it was where it was at so uh, that's that went hand in hand with it Okay, do you still believe the PPSH submachine guns were an inspiration for the Soviet AK-47? Well, I'm not sure I exactly believe that. I, I do believe that when it came to the actual combat performance of what we consider to be a very, very hotly loaded um, cartridge, 762 by 25 you know, the the wartime loadings of that were pretty hot that you put them in a very compact high high capacity weapon I definitely think I definitely think that you know they knew they knew they were on to something and you know that plus the experience of the STG 44 probably probably did tell them that eventually this is this is the direction we're gonna go I still don't believe the SKS was anything other than a stopgap, uh, basically designed to give them the advantage of a better rifle than the Moise and the Gant, and something that was, you know, simple, reliable, robust, came in at the end of the war, and it served until the, you know, the AK-47 eventually supplanted it in the mid-50s or, or thereabouts. But So I don't believe the SKS was ever looked upon as being the answer I think it was looked upon as being the stopgap an improvement a stopgap and something that would buy them the time to get them into the direction where they want to go we, we like to think in the West that the Soviets really weren't that they were just they, they fought the whole war in desperation and and certainly for part of the war they were fighting in desperation and at the end of the war though they were thinking and they were thinking ahead and they they were they were taking in the lessons that they had learned and you know they improved a lot of equipment right after the war and came out with things that they thought were going to be a lot better um, you don't lose 25 million people in a war and not say what is it on every level in that we can do to improve so that this does not happen again and part of that is every piece of equipment is scrutinized to see what works what doesn't and what has to be improved and I think they looked and uh, saw that and you know it's also um, you know well worth noting that the PPSH served well into the Cold War as basically a quasi assault rifle before before Warsaw Pact and satellite countries could get you know AK-47s and things there were still huge numbers of PPSHs in service and you know it was it was because they had worked fairly well they weren't perfect but they worked fairly well and they basically um, were used until they were replaced by the AK-47 so I think in, in many ways it, it, it really is an inspiration. Uh, it was a more powerful submachine gun, but not as powerful as a rifle. And they knew they just had to go a couple of evolutionary steps ahead to get to get the powerful enough cartridge in the submachine gun like frame and they and that they would have a winner, and of course they did. So that's it. Well this is the end of old school guns 
number 87. And again, if you have any questions, you can go ahead and email them to us at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them on Podbean, which is our primary carrier, and we will answer those questions. And we will get to them and we will answer them. And we I really like receiving them. They're they're a lot of fun. And I enjoy sharing the uh, the insight with you. But for now, this is old school guns out. <laughs>